Tune in to the Bridging the Gap radio show, hosted by Pastor Hugh Harmon, live every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Never Had It So Good Gospel 107. Be a part of this challenging but life-changing show discussing men versus males, educational issues, parenting tips, and learning how to be faithful in trying times. That's the Bridging the Gap radio show, hosted by Pastor Hugh Harmon, live every Sunday at 5 p.m. Call in and be a part of the show at 347-855-8867 on Never Had It So Good Gospel 107. Remember, positive communication is the key to success. Powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Welcome to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Harmon. We are again enthused and grateful to be back on the air. Today, we're going to dive into a discussion with a special guest on a topic that is near and dear to my heart, a topic that some may still think is being overemphasized, especially given the polarizing political climate in which we're living in, but a topic that I believe needs to be had and to be added to the crisis narratives that we currently are dealing with. Why is this so dear to my heart? Um, This would be this year, 2022, August 2022, would be 25 years that I have been involved in public education as an educator. I started out in 1997 in the classroom in my alma mater high school in Brooklyn, New York, Boys and Girls High School. I was a science teacher fresh out of college. I taught biology, chemistry, physics, and I taught what is called investigation in science. At that time, that was the lab class for science. And uh, as it were, some years later, I met my wife also in the classroom. She was teaching at the elementary level. And so this whole discussion around education and the mental health of educators is near and dear to my heart as a former educator, not only being in the classroom, I've moved from the classroom to administration. So I've seen the challenges with mental health before COVID-19, since COVID-19. I know what, what what it's all about from the classroom space. And I also know what it's all about from the administrative space. And I know what it is all about as a as a parent with a child in the school system during a pandemic just like this. Today, January 2022, marks a solid two years now that we've been dealing with COVID-19 infections, hospitalizations, and tragically, deaths. And this pandemic has affected our country economically. It has had a truly detrimental impact on our education system. And unfortunately, The reality is that for approximately the next five years or so, or even more, educators and students alike and parents will have to adjust and work cooperatively to get back on task with teaching and learning. Without question, our children have suffered great learning loss in terms of outcomes and much needed socialization skills because of this global pandemic. But another often unspoken and unregarded consequence is the struggles of educators, the frontline workers in this crisis, classroom teachers. And I was reading an article in Education Week just 
this week and on the very topic, it was entitled Stress, Hypervigilance and Decision Fatigue, Teaching During Omicron. And the author of the article, uh, a teaching veteran, simply states, I have no words to describe what it is like to be a teacher right now. Today's discussion is about the mental health and the well-being of our teachers in the midst of this crisis. I want to first greet our guest, Miss Veronica Primus. I want to welcome you to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, UJ Harmon. I thank you for meeting us in this space, for uh, accepting our invitation, and for us having the time and the opportunity to share the discussion. I'm excited. Delighted to have you with us today to talk about this important topic of mental health educators. And I want you to just take a few minutes, introduce yourself to the Bridging the Gap family, and tell us who Miss Veronica Primus is and what brings you to this work. Well, thank you so much, Hugh. It's obviously a pleasure and honor to be here with you. And I didn't realize you were teaching in Brooklyn, New York. That's where I went to school. Wow. Probably a generation before you, I'm sure. Obviously. <laughs> Back in the 60s. I'm, I'm celebrating 48 years as an educator. And um, originally from South Carolina, I grew up in Hardyville in Jasper County, the low country. Okay. One of the poorest counties in the state. Has been always. And my family joined the great migration in the 60s we moved to brooklyn in 63. wow so i went from a very segregated very deprived elementary school but not not deprived from the spirit and the soul of education i'm going to say deprived materially of course and my mother and father decided we needed to go north where the uncles and aunts were to get a better education was her primary goal, and that's what we did. We moved, uh, when I moved, I went to junior high school 258, which wow. was a part of the, the girls' high school. Okay. Uh, and uh, Bedford Stuyvesant, that must sound familiar to you. That's very familiar. <laughs> yeah. So I went from the rural farm south to the uh, quote unquote ghetto north, but it was so, it was wealthy as far as I was concerned in comparison, you know. Okay. But then the culture shock was so traumatic. When I went to the junior high school, I went from being the valedictorian at my elementary school to the junior high, I would not open my mouth. I wouldn't talk mm. because I was so overwhelmed. And I had brothers and sisters, and we were all sort of overwhelmed with the experience. Uh, in the north, we didn't know about these city kids. And so they said, well, you're black, you're from the south, you can't talk, you're retarded. Wow, wow. So they placed me in special ed right then and there. My mother and father not knowing anything about special ed, they didn't graduate high school, you know, in the south, everybody went to school together. We didn't have separate classes or anything. So I was in special ed for a while, maybe like four or five weeks, and the teacher, uh, one of my Jewish teachers, he said, you know what? I don't think you belong in this class. Even though I wasn't talking, I was doing my work. Mm. So he said, we should have you tested. 
So I took an IQ test. And to this day, I never knew what the scores were. But the next day, I was moved to the honors class. Wow. And so from there, I'm giving the backstory to, to help you see where I am today. Uh, so it took a teacher to take an interest in me that made a difference. Otherwise, I could have languished in special ed the rest of my school career and didn't know from nothing. Wow. So then um, integration came in 65. That was 63. In 65, they took all the honest students and gave us the opportunity to go to the um, Midwood High School and the wow. better section of town. Yes. I know Midwood very well. I took one of my SATs there. Okay. So that's my alma mater. Wow. So they moved us to Midwood as an experiment. We were the first group of kids of color, the black kids and the Puerto Rican kids, to go to this predominantly white school where the children drove up with chauffeured limousines and the fathers and mothers were lawyers and doctors and you know, the owners of the corporation, you know, that upper class in Brooklyn. Yes. Right across the street from Brooklyn College. Yes. So here I am now uh, in another whole culture. And the teachers made the difference for me because my parents could not help me navigate this new scenario. There were good teachers and there were bad teachers. So becoming an educator was important to me because it was teachers who helped me throughout my life. Wow. So I succeeded at Midwood against all odds. And then uh, graduating from high school as an honor student, I was given a scholarship to Delphi University in Garden City, New York. Wow. You, you recognize that, Garden I, City? I, I recognize all of these names, <laughs> all of these places. <laughs> I didn't even realize we had that connection. But as you know, Adelphi was one of the premier schools. Again, we were the second class now integrating Adelphi. And it was at the height of the Civil Rights Movement in 1969. And I'm a child of the movement. <clears throat> in high school, I followed Malcolm X. Uh, the Black Panthers, and we lived in the area of Brooklyn where we were active. We were very active. And so when I went to high school, I mean college, immediately I joined the Black Student Union. We yes. began sitting in and demanding that they teach Black studies. And Adelphi became one of the first colleges to actually have a department on Black studies, and you could get a degree. Wow. But my thing was to be a teacher. I knew that teachers make a difference in the lives of people and of their community. Wow. So uh, teaching has been my life. So I've taught in New York. I came back home in 1977 to South Carolina after I got married to have my children because I do believe the South gave me the strength and the yes. fortitude to withstand all that I went through in the North. Wow. And so I came back home to make a difference. And uh, I have four children now who are adults with their children. And I'm, I'm happy about that, but I miss the cultural enrichment of New York. 
There's wow. nothing to compare with that. Nothing. And so, right. And so the rest of my life I spent trying to uh, and bring culture to the community to help people to know that it takes a village. It really does take a village. And I learned that from growing up in the South, from maturing in the North. And so I went from, well, when I went back to South Carolina, uh, that was 1977. I couldn't take it. <laughs> it was like going back to the 50s. Wow. The teachers had such poor self-esteem. The schools were so terrible. So I went to work in Savannah, Georgia for a while, and I lived there for a while. And then my husband was actually from Barbuda in the Caribbean. Wow. And so we decided to go live there for a year, and I taught school there. So I've had a lot of eye-opening experiences to bring me uh, throughout my career. Wow. We appreciate that. You just gave a rich background history in um, education and why you got into education and your own story. And you said some, some pivotal things, and I think that are important to our discussion today. You said teachers made the difference. And your success against the odds seemed to always be connected to great teachers who saw the potential in you, did not give up on you, took a risk with you pretty much. Um, from a cultural sense and just the whole idea that teachers make the difference in the lives of people in our communities. As a career educator, when would you say that you began to pay attention to the phenomenon of the trauma that educators were dealing with? And can you share an experience that stands out as the one time that you said, you know what, maybe it's New York, maybe it's Savannah, Georgia, maybe it was here in South Carolina where you said, you know, I need to do something about this. Yes, um, there are many. I was, I've you know, been thinking about this, and I don't know if there's just one point. It, it's something that had been with me for a while. For example, when I said in New York, I was a brand new teacher. Freeport, New York was my first job. Integrated the school in Freeport. Wow. I should have armor on, okay, from integration. <laughs> Um, I worked at Freeport too. Believe you it or not. Did. What yes. school? I worked at a place called Freeport Pride. I actually worked, I was over Nassau County with the New York State Department of Health, a program they call Reality Check. You remember the Truth um, Project that was trying to turn around tobacco use among youth in New York? They called yes. it Reality Check. It wasn't called Truth. And I was the person over the whole of Nassau County, and I was based out of Freeport. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I was in Freeport from 73 to 77. Wow. So that was before your time. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I could kick myself for not buying a house in Freeport then. Right. Because it was 50000 for this nice house, and now they're what, about almost a million dollars? Almost. Yeah. So... Anyway, uh, in New York, as a new educator, we were always, well, we joined, I joined the NEA, you know, National Education Association in college. Okay. And I had teachers that led me to know, be a professional, join your professional organization. Yes. And so as a teacher, right away, I got involved. And as an activist, I made sure I got involved with the local 
Education Association. And so we fought for rights because it's a union in New York. It's not a union down here, you know. The Correct. South Carolina Education Association can only do but so much because they're not a union. Right. But that union made a difference. I got good training and leadership. I uh, was the, um, you know, the, the person, the contact at the school. And so I went to a lot of workshops and training sessions. And when we said we wanted a free lunch period, we got a free lunch period. Right. If we said that teachers need an aid in every classroom, we got an aid in every classroom because right. we would walk out. We would take action. And so I was used to that as a teacher. And I believe that that strong sense of professionalism made education stronger. We did our jobs. And so then when I came south, the teachers felt they looked beat down. Uh, they didn't feel like they had a right to do anything. They were not members of the association. So right away I said, okay, we're going to organize. You know, I was always organizing. And uh, the teachers were hesitant. They were afraid. They told me, yeah, but, you know, the principal might not like that. Or the, the superintendent's not going to like that. I said, what are you talking about? You're a professional. Right. But they didn't act like it. And so I started organizing them, getting the association in there, um, speaking up. And, of course, I became a troublemaker. Hmm. So they started looking at me. Okay, here she comes. She's a That's troublemaker. Because right. I was disturbing the status quo. So that made me feel, okay, here I am. I was this little girl from the South, very rural South, with very little resources. I went to the north and I saw the possibility. Been to the mountaintop, okay? <laughs> right, exactly. Tried to bring it back with me. Teachers themselves fought against the progress. They mm. were afraid. Mm. So right away I started thinking leadership skills do make a difference. Teachers are not. We, we, we deserve better than this. Right. And so I would do different things to work with teachers. And then, um, but as a young teacher, you could imagine the veterans were like, come on, little girl, let's sit down and be quiet, okay? Right, right. <laughs> do your job. But I could never be satisfied with that. And so along, coming along, I, um, when I went to the Caribbean, that was 84 to 86. And the the schools there are terribly poor, poor, mm -hmm. deprived, dirt poor. Right. The people lived in houses with dirt was the floor. Right. So, and the school was one big building where the teachers had to talk over each other, actually. Right. I was a teacher for the infants, which is the British system, five-year-olds, right. kindergarten. Right. And so my job was to teach them how to read. Okay, I went to the um the past the minister who was over the school was the Church of England system. I said, Okay, where where are the textbooks? Where's where's the curriculum? Um, where the teachers make copies? Right. Because <laughs> I had been this teacher. Yeah. I had been uh, in New York, I had been in Savannah, I'd been the schools that had a resources and here I had nothing. Right. And so the pastor looked at me 
and he was a very British uh, black man. He said, are you a teacher? She said, yes, I'm a teacher. You know that. You got my resume and everything. He said, then go teach. Wow. And wow. I was, wow, that was that was a pivotal moment for me because what he's saying is, what he said was, if you're a teacher, it's in you. You know what to do. You don't need the curriculum. You don't need all this extra stuff. Right. They don't have it in the first place. They didn't have paper. They didn't have pencils. No chalk. No, the chalkboard was probably put up there in the twenties or thirties. Wow! Wow! So I just said, okay, I've got to use my head, and I went. And the whole curriculum, like when I was teaching first grade in Freeport, we had to write up a curriculum. Uh, the teachers did, and so all that started coming back to me. So I started writing it all down from memory. A whole curriculum of teaching reading from from the phonetic sound, and so then I would take the children out uh, to the beach, and we would identify the environment and words, and they learned to read. Wow! So when I was getting ready to leave after a year, which I couldn't take it anymore because I had to wash clothes by hand. I had to tell you about that because I'm from the Caribbean. I know exactly what you're you're talking about. Where are you from? I'm from Barbados, not Barbuda, but Barbados. Okay. Yeah. And you know there's a difference, right? Yes. Yeah. People always try to make me say Barbados. And I said, no, there's actually an island called Barbuda. Yeah, Antigua and Barbuda. Yeah, I know well. Yes. That's it. And you know, Barbuda is the little sister island that's very deprived. Yes, yes, yes. That's where my husband was from, and that's where we lived. But after a year, I enjoyed teaching and enjoyed working with the community because teachers were honored. Yes. Being a teacher was a title. Can you relate to that? I can re- I can relate. It was not hard. Teachers were equated to doctors and lawyers. Yes. In the Caribbean. Yes. That's correct. Yes. And education was everything. everything. Those little children, I know for a fact, went on to become lawyers, doctors, engineers, yes. uh, bankers in New York and England. Yes. And all over the country, you know. So the parent knew the community put everything behind supporting that little school. That school was like uh, a place of worship, which wow. we did. We, we worshiped every day at the school. Wow. Um, so that led me to understand community support community culture has a lot to do with a quality school. Wow. Wow. Correct. Um, We're talking to Miss Veronica Primus here on Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Harmon. We're talking about mental health and educators or or the mental health and well-being of educators in this crisis situation that we're calling COVID-19 or in the times that we're living in. We're going to continue our discussion after this commercial. 
You are listening to Bridging the Gap Radio Show with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, coming to you live from Columbia, South Carolina, bringing you hard-hitting topics, leaders in the community, businessmen and women, and faith leaders that are making a difference. If you're a bridge builder and you would love to get your story heard on this network, Never Had It So Good Gospel 107 FM and Never Had It So Good Sports Network, contact us at hjvharmon at gmail.com or kingdombookinggift at gmail.com or sclovefellowship at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Harmon. We have our special guest today, Miss Veronica Primus, talking about mental health and educators. It is pertinent conversation. It is a reticent conversation. It is something that we need to talk about. And when we closed just before the commercial, she talked about the idea of understanding that community support makes a huge difference and community culture in the success of a school, not just for the students, but also for the teachers and the parents and all the stakeholders in general. Um, as, as you said that, Unavoidably, we are literally living in a season when things are now being marked as either pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID. What would you say are the mental health challenges for educators that predated COVID? And what are ones that are highlighted today because of COVID? Okay, so pre-COVID, there the problems a lot of the problems that have come to light today did exist previously but people were coping with it mm -hmm. the pandemic sort of brought everything out to you know to be seen mm -hmm. but uh pre-covid the main stresses were curriculum uh there's always seemed to be a new way to teach mm. and my thing being old school you know i believe I am educated, I am intelligent because of teaching, and uh, I have a desire to learn because I had good schools, it, and I put that in quotes because it wasn't always good schools, but there was always somebody to make my educational career successful. So to see all the curriculum changes, and I've been around long enough for eight years to see the pendulum swing from one end to the other come back. Uh -huh. And it just uh, amazes me all the time to see the money that's being made from curriculum and textbooks and and stuff. Right. So the constant curriculum changes was always stressful for teachers. Professional development, professional development, you got to learn something new. And really, it's not new. There's nothing new under the sun. Going back to Aristotle, going mm -hmm. back to John Dewey, it's the right. same theory. They keep packaging it differently. Wow. And so teachers are often expected to learn something new, implement it, be assessed on it without really mastering what they do. Wow. The paperwork had become a lot. And so there was a movement, oh, we're going to reduce the paperwork. We're going to put everything in the computer. Well, my last six years was as a coach, a literacy coach. Mm. So I've taught 
every grade level from Oregon Daycare Center through college. Wow. And uh, I know that in special education, so especially special ed, all it's going to be um, digitized. We're going to digitize everything. Well, you know, that didn't happen. You've been in education. Right. They just, you had to do more paperwork to put it on the internet. <laughs> right, exactly. And so teachers were leaving school, like I call them uh, pack mules, with all kind of papers on their back and their shoulders and going home and doing all this work. And parents didn't understand that when they went home, school didn't end. Most of the teachers I knew stayed at school to six and seven o'clock to try to keep up with the paperwork, the ones who were dedicated. Right. And I was doing that too. That's what I did. I would stay at school once my ch my children grew up in my classroom. Wow. <laughs> I would go pick them up, buy them a Happy Meal, and bring them back to the classroom where they could do their homework, eat and take a nap, whatever. But I'm busy doing work. Wow. And I know there are lots of teachers like that. Yes. On the on the weekends, holidays, if the principal would open the school, I would be there. Wow. Because I never felt I could do enough to prepare for my children. Right. And uh, eventually, though, okay, I'll, well, I'll get into another question. I'm trying to stay focused. COVID. Okay, so the discipline had gotten bad before the, um, you know, the zero tolerance and all these right. kinds of problems, that wasn't helping at all. And so during COVID, the use of technology became prime and foremost. Many teachers were not prepared. Yes, we had courses. Yes, we had professional development. But it wasn't uh, taken seriously. Right. So that a lot of teachers said, well, I got time to learn that. I'll learn that tomorrow. But mm. then tomorrow hit, bam, like a bomb. Mm. And it was the stress of trying to understand the different platforms that had to be used to teach lessons. And then it was dual modality where you had to teach online and children at, in the classroom at the same time. That was crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and now you have the vaccine debate and the masking debate. <laughs> um, I, I had to step out. That's when I retired because it appeared that the public was not understanding that these teachers are human beings. They're not. He or she went home to family. They're not. They're not. And I, 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 I thank you for saying that. For the bridge builders out there that are listening to this interview, for those of you that are going to listen to this, that are listening live, those of you that are going to listen to this recording later, those of you that are going to share this recording, this needs to be said. This conversation needs to be had. It needs to be repeated that educators are human beings. They are not these people from outer space. They have families. They have husbands. They have wives. They have children. They have children in school themselves. They are more, sometimes I found educators more accountable to other people's children than their own children. Yes. Um, 
and you mentioned a number of things, and I think those things need to be reiterated. And I'm going to mention them so people can hear the things that educators are dealing with. It's not just the students dealing with this. The educators have to deal with this first before the students ever encounter this. So curriculum shifts, the constant need to relearn and to be retrained on new programs that aren't really new programs. Professional development, new tests, new assessments, new levels of accountability. Um, Teachers aren't only assessing and evaluating students, they're being assessed and evaluated by higher ups. And so the paperwork overload, like you said, especially in special ed, where you are doing manual paperwork, then you got to enter that paperwork on the computer, then you got to store these documents, then you have to have hard copies and electronic copies of the same thing School doesn't end at 3 p.m. for teachers like it ends for students. Most teachers are there to 7, 8 o'clock at night, That and I could vouch for that. Um, and then when they finish at 8 o'clock, they take work home. So they're at yeah. home while their family is eating dinner. They're at the dinner table doing homework and not being paid for any of this. Teachers right. raising their children in the schoolhouse. Uh, you know, I'm aware of it because I did it myself. Daughters, okay. my daughters had to hang out at the school while I was finishing work. They okay. had to either at my school or at my wife's school. Um, disciplinary issues. Um, that's the elephant in the room where, you know, students have been home for a period of time when we had the mandated shutdown and they were allowed to do whatever. And now they have to come back into the structure of a school and the structure of an academic setting and have to understand that the adult in the room is not your parent. It's not the person that you talk to, like you talk to your parent disrespectfully, but you have to line yourself up and realize it's not only your child in the classroom, it's 15, 20, 30 other kids that this one adult is supposed to supervise. Then learn new technology for virtual learning. Um, Many of the parents complain. As an administrator, I got complaints on a daily basis throughout the day about parents who were frustrated because they didn't know how to access materials on the internet during virtual learning or a classroom. Imagine the teacher that has to not only manage that, but has to manage a a child or children sitting in the classroom who also don't want to be neglected, who also need to be taught. So again, I thank you. Uh, There's a pylon. That's happening. If you and and I just want to go back quickly to the article I talked about earlier, and I want to lift a question from the article. It and and the article says this, and I'm gonna read it. Teachers are in hyper vigilance mode. We have been for the past two years. Teaching already had problems with attrition before the pandemic. And now those problems are all magnified, and we've added hyper vigilance. 10 times. What that means is now you're not just looking for as students are learning, you're looking for as students are on the computers, on appropriate material, if they're even following along with the lesson, if they're not, if they don't have other windows open doing something inappropriate, um, all kinds of things that the teacher's not asked to be accountable for. Teachers' nervous systems have been in overdrive, firing constantly during this pandemic. At first, way back in 2020, 
Um, we were mm -hmm. consumed with getting kids what they needed for mm -hmm. remote learning. Then we had to figure out how to lead remote mm -hmm. learning meaningfully, how to use the new modality deliver instruction, and why didn't that show up on the screen today? Am I even being effective? All these questions are questions that teachers are asking themselves. What has the education system, from your point of view, boards, associations, teacher support groups, what have they done or not done to address this issue? Okay, Hugh, um, I don't consider myself an expert, just a practitioner. Understood. But I've, I've been involved with the um, South Carolina Education Association from having served as their director for professional development um, and different community organizations. And so and at my school, I've always tried to be um, involved with different initiatives. Right. So there have been initiatives on the state level and the district level, social-emotional learning. Okay, yes. they, they promoted that. Now, I was very heavily invested in that because I've always believed in leadership and um, the education, the leadership for teachers, social-emotional health of teachers. But the efforts have been very weak. Right. Yes, they give lip service to the organization CASEL that promotes social emotional learning, right. uh, the five competencies. Right. They give lip service to the character development, all these different programs on character, but they're not serious about it. And they give it to the teachers to do as a curriculum, as an add on, it's usually not really required. It's suggested, and the counselors usually uh, deal with the character development. So I um, I don't see a real effort. Yes, I know at the State Department right now, they have a whole division on social-emotional learning. They put out a whole website with all kinds of resources for teachers. But when you get to the school level, if that principal, as you know, doesn't support that, right. it won't happen. It won't happen. And the teachers are not autonomous. Mm. They have to go by the administration. And the administrators, principals have to do what the district says to do. The district doesn't always do what the state say, but, you know, they're supposed to. So I've talked to some teachers just this year who um, I asked them about their social emotional learning. And they said, what, what are you talking about? Mm. And I'm saying, you know, I'm in the community right now as a retiree. I said, I know that y'all got these guidelines. Oh, our principal didn't tell us nothing about that. Or our curriculum person didn't tell us nothing about that. So the culture of these agencies um, has to change to where they really want to make a difference. Mm. Yeah, they tell teachers to teach social-emotional learning, but then the teachers don't go through that process themselves. And that's where I'm coming from. We have to deal with the person who is doing the teaching for the teaching to be effective. So yeah, there's, there's lots of research, there's lots of articles, there's lots of organizations, but I don't 
see it getting into the classroom on the front line with the teacher and the child. Wow. Wow. I, I, I have to tip my hat to you. I have to tip my hat to people that are in the classroom today. I left the classroom a number of years ago, and I tell people all the time, I would not run back to the classroom. I love children. I love teaching. I love education. I love the space. I love teaching and learning. You know, I love to see when the spark goes off in the eyes of a, of a young man or a young woman, but they're just, the challenges are overwhelming. Uh, and that leads to my next question. I hear people talking a lot. Um, the barbershop, uh, when I go to the nail salon, I take my daughters to the nail salon or, or my wife to the, to the hairdresser and I'm just sitting around waiting for them to finish. And, you know, just in, in, in the restaurants, et cetera, everybody has an opinion about education, educators, and what teachers should and shouldn't be doing. Would you say in doing this work, talking to teacher retirees mm -hmm. and currently working teachers, that is there a real difference between what teachers are facing today and what they faced maybe 10, 15 years ago, or is there no difference? What's your opinion? Yes, there is a difference. And I would go back longer than 15, 20 years. I mean, at least 20 years. The difference has been in, because of the different curriculum and focus on strategies, that we've birthed a generation of parents mm. who are not critical thinkers. Mm. We went from, my opinion, critical thinking, teaching to, uh, children how to be inquisitive and think has to be a foundation, but that's only done in the upper class communities. Mm. The schools in the neighborhoods where economics is low, social and economic status is low, are dictated to. They're mm. expected to just do the minimum, the basic. So they can make the test score and graduate or move on to the next level. Children in upper middle class communities, which I have been privileged to be a part of as a teacher, they to think, to develop who they are. And academics is a part of a, the whole child approach. We've given so much lip service to the whole child you know, all this kind of stuff, but it's not really done. So yeah, uh, 15, 20 years ago, there was better discipline because that group of parents came from a more disciplined environment. Understood. Yes. Understood. For example, uh, my children are in their 40s, my older children and my, my oldest child, my daughter is, um, she'll be 45 this year, I believe. So, but then my youngest son is 35 out of the four. There is a difference in how they act. Wow. The older two in their 40s, I was a more disciplined parent mm -hmm. because that was the culture. You teach your children to do this, to do that, and the teachers did the same thing. They were around my age, so we were all about keeping them, there's structure, there are rules, right. you know, 
follow the rules. And then the next generation of adults, teachers and parents, they have learned, oh no, you've got to let children do this and you've got to give them more uh, freedom. And so now their children are not as disciplined because then you had the internet came in there. Wow. So my son, who's 35, he's more lax. And, and I'm thinking, I'm the same person. But I went along with the culture of the time. When By the time he came along, I was more lax. And my daughter would tell me, she said, wait a minute. You didn't let us do that when we were little. You didn't let us get away with that. Because my uh, thinking was different for them as opposed to the next generation. So, yes, each generation changes because parenting changes. Right now, when I see parents come into school, you know, young people, they're younger than my children. I want to snatch them up. Right. right. I understand. I know it. And I'll tell you what, when I I was in the classroom, and I was a fairly young guy teaching, and I had parents coming in that were much younger. Parents yeah. that I had taught when I first yeah. started. I, I was fortunate to teach high school in my first years out of college. So uh, you, people say, wow, you're an old man. But the truth is, they were already on their way out when I started teaching. So for me to run into an adult now that has their own kids in school, and they say, yo, Mr. Harmon, you taught me in your first year teaching. Uh, I try to explain that to my wife and colleagues, and they say, oh, okay, okay, so you're not that old. Uh, but but uh, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. Another question about a divide, a difference is in, and you mentioned it with community culture. We are in the South. We both have some experience from urban enclave of New York City, understanding what it is to to live and to work in that kind of setting. Now here in the South, um, I would never say that the urban settings here in the South are even comparative to what's in New York. But is there really a divide or a gap? And again, this is discussions I overhear between teachers who are working in the suburbs versus those who are working in, quote unquote, the inner city. And which group is most challenged or are those two groups of teachers, regardless of where they are, because of COVID, they're all facing the same challenges? What are your thoughts on that? Well, that's interesting. And you're right. The urban area doesn't compare to New York. So here in Columbia, for example, I worked in Richland 1. And I worked in several schools from the rural community to the inner city community. Right. And there is a difference because in the rural areas or suburbs, you want to say, but, you know, here in Columbia, the country. The country, right. right. (laughs) Yeah, in the country, you have uh, children. School is very important because it's usually the only place for socialization other Mm. than the church. Right. So the parents are very supportive because they love school. Most of them went to that school and it is a part of their history. So they come to the school expecting things to be like it was when they were in school and they try to make their children, they tell them, they give them history. Oh, you know, when I was going to the school, we did this and we did that and you better do this and you better do that. 
And quite often, a lot of the teachers stay for long periods of time in those schools because it's like a family. It's a community. When you have a program at night, everybody comes. Mama, daddy, sister, brother, aunt, uncle, grandma, grandpa. Everybody comes because it is a focal point for the community. Right. Now, when you go to the inner city, and which I taught at several schools in the inner city, you're dealing with a lot of transition, uh, mm. people who are moving and homelessness. Mm. Right. And you don't have that sense of community because they are moving, they're coming in, they're coming out. Uh, that's where you have your housing, you know, projects and you have a lot of transitive transition behavior. And then you have, uh, violence. There's more incidents of violence. There's, Violence in the rural, but not as much. In the city, you're dealing with that. And then you have parents who are upper middle class more often in the city. So there's a, there's a mix. And so you have children in a classroom from one socioeconomic, uh, height to uh, the very bottom. And then you have to mix them all together. So it's, it's more challenging. So I found it to be more challenging in the urban setting and more relaxing in the rural area. Uh, understood. Yeah. So understood. yeah, there's a difference. Great, great. I, I, again, you're listening to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Harmon. We have a special guest, Ms. Veronica Primus. We're talking about mental health and educators in the times that we're living in. Um, Ms. Primus has a long career in education experience uh, around not just teaching and learning, but around the whole idea of teacher support, teacher um, self-care, et cetera. Um, after this commercial, we're going to get to where we talk solutions because Ms. Primus is involved in a lot of initiatives and I want her to share with some s solutions because here at Bridging the Gap, we're about building bridges and not erecting walls. So after this commercial, we'll be right back. We're calling all artists, authors, event planners, community leaders with a compelling story and those interested in being guest columnists in the Carolina's newest lifestyle magazine, Restore. Our mantra is living, loving, and making moves the kingdom way. Get promoted, marketed, and published in this new magazine at the best rates in the business. Restore Magazine is offered in both print and digital formats. Email us at kingdombookandgif at gmail.com. All one word, kingdombookandgif, all lowercase, at gmail.com. All spelt out, kingdombookandgif at gmail.com for details and an advertising quote. Again, we're calling all artists, authors, event planners, business leaders, community leaders, faith leaders with a compelling story, and those interested in being guest columnists in the Carolina's newest lifestyle magazine, The Restore Magazine, where our mantra is living, loving, and making moves the kingdom way, get promoted, marketed, and published in this new magazine at the best rates in the business. Restore Magazine, again, is offered in both print and digital formats. Email us at kingdombookandgif at gmail.com for details and an advertising quote. Are you an author? Someone inspired to write a book? Walking around with book ideas either in your head or in a collection of notebooks? 
Maybe you're a preacher with a sermon series that you believe could be turned into a book. Or you're an individual with a compelling story to tell, and you just don't know where to start. You can start with this information-filled one-hour Zoom class called Pathway to Publishing. This is a one-hour course presented by a published author, owner of a subsidy publishing firm in Columbia, South Carolina, but serving clients from the West Coast to the East Coast and abroad for over 15 years with publishing services and book distribution and marketing assistance. Hugh J. Harmon, yours truly of Kingdom Book and Gift LLC, has been serving as a Christian-owned publishing house catering to the needs of over 20 authors. Many of them are repeat customers with multiple publications. Kingdom Book and Gift LLC also publishes a lifestyle magazine entitled Restore. If you have an idea, we have the resources and expertise to make your idea a reality in both print and ebook formats. Join us on Saturday, January 22nd at 11 a.m. for a special Pathway to Publishing seminar. We have only 25 slots. It will be hosted on Zoom, and the price is a non-refundable $50, of which 50% can be applied to a publishing package with KBNG LLC Publishers. Find out the key steps needed to get your book ready for publishing and for being introduced to the world. Again, join us on Saturday, January 22nd at 11 a.m. for a special Pathway to Publishing seminar on Zoom. We only have 25 slots. It will be hosted on Zoom, and the price is a non-refundable $50, of which 50% can be applied to a publishing package with KBNG LLC Publishers. Find out the key steps needed to get your book idea turned into a reality and introduced to the world. Welcome back to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Harmon, with our special guest today, Ms. Veronica Primus, talking about mental health and educators. As we finished our discussion, we talked about the difference or the comparison between teachers who are working in the inner city and teachers who are working in what we would consider the rural or suburban areas of the South, where we are here in Columbia, South Carolina, and the Metro and the Midlands area. Uh, but I want to move to solutions. Um, here on Bridging the Gap, we believe in solutions. We talk, we could talk about problems, we could talk about challenges, we could talk about crisis, but we're always trying to find ways to close the gap and come up with solutions. Ms. Primus, what are some pointers, some advice that you would give to those still engaged in the field who, who are feeling exhausted, feeling frustrated, feeling what I described from the article earlier, but they want to weather the current storms of accountability because they are in love with children and they are in love with what they do. What, is, what would be some self-care advice that you would give to those people to just hang in there and to make the best of what may look like a bad situation. Hugh, I tell you, I try to help teachers understand, pace yourself. That 10 year uh, plaque that says you never missed a day in 10 years is not worth the stress. Mm. Take your days, take your sick days, your mental health day, your personal days, pace yourself. Don't kill yourself. And I can talk to you from reality. In 2012, 
I was diagnosed with a tumor on my wow. spine at wow. the base of my head and uh, between my brain and my spine. I didn't know it was there. I wow. started experiencing a lot of headaches and I kept going to the doctor to find out why was I having these headaches. Seems like nothing was helping. And finally, uh, the doctor said, okay, we're going to do an MRI. And they found this tumor that would have killed me if mm. I didn't do anything about it. So when they sent me to the surgeon for an analysis, the surgeon looked at me and said, how did you walk in here? Mm. I said, oh, I just walked in. I mean, I came after school and I'm here. He said, you will stay home today. You will not go back to school until you have surgery. And that, I was like, I was otherwise very healthy. What are you talking about? I was teaching special aid at the time. My children need me. I got to be there. He said, do you want to die in front of your children? Wow. I didn't know, understand how important it was. And so from there, I realized that the tumor had been growing over a period of years. And the stress, the surgeon told me it was from stress. And so I had to have brain surgery in 2013. Wow. I was, wow. yes. And that led me, I was very active, busy doing all these kinds of things that I did and didn't realize what was happening over time. So I try to tell other educators, pace yourself. You have a family, if you have children, and just for yourself, understand that stress kills. Seek out a mental health therapist if you have to. Uh, seek out a massage therapist. Get a massage on a regular basis. Take a day to have for self-care. Have a facial. Um, and another thing the surgeon told me, he said, you know what, as a teacher, he said, I bet you used to carry those heavy bags on your shoulder, right? Mm. I was like, yes. That's what I said before. The teachers were like, paint me he said, stop it. You get a rolling cart, and don't you carry another heavy bag, not even a pocketbook on your shoulder. And I was thinking, what are you talking about? He said, do you know the nerve that goes from your neck down your shoulder can be compromised over time because of heavy stuff on your shoulder? And that weakens the blood flow to your brain, which... I was suffering from. And it's such a simple thing, not understanding, just so busy trying to be the best person for the children, just mm -hmm. trying to do my job. But there's a way to do it. Are you wearing high heel shoes in the classroom? Mm. Stop. Put on some flats. Yes. Because we walk on concrete floors. All day long. Yes. Think about what it's doing to your back. I have a lot of my friends who are retired now that have to have knee surgery because they were on their feet all the time. Nobody tells you this as a teacher. Sit down. Yeah, I know they said, oh, the teacher got to be up moving around. No, sit down. Wow. Okay. Pace yourself. Take breaks. Do you get to go to the bathroom? On a regular basis at school? Probably not. 
There's some teachers that don't have a break until the end of the day. They eat lunch with their children. They go to related arts with their children, some of them. And so at the end of the day, whenever they have a free period, then they have professional development. And so some of them don't get to go to the bathroom. Well, don't be a martyr. Do you know that will destroy your bladder over time? Yes. yes. And you will end up with incontinence. <laughs> there should be a paper on that. Teachers are incontinence. I'm serious. Wow. Wow. That so is... my, yeah. So my thing is, pace yourself. Understand that, yeah, the principals are going to come by and they want to see you up moving around the classroom. If you sit down, you say, I need to sit for a minute and do it. We have to stand up for ourselves. Understood. I appreciate that. I thank you for that. You have a number of initiatives that you're involved in. Can you share with us what the theme and the purpose is behind those different initiatives? You said you're not an expert. Like I tell people, I'm by no means an expert. I just like to talk about a lot of things. I read a lot. Um, and, and I just like to hear people's opinions. But again, for me, I target solutions. So what are some of the initiatives that you're doing and what are they tied around? Well, Hugh, as I said, when I moved from New York back to South Carolina, I moved with a mission. And I, I had a zeal to change the communities. In New York, I got involved in the community. I was taught how to successfully organize and through the education association as well as community-based organizations. So when I came back and I found that the community was so weak and I knew that the community makes for strong schools. Yes. So my mission was to organize the, the parents. So I first started in Jasper County organizing the parents. We formed an organization called Taxpayers Advocacy and Support Coalition. Because even though parents, especially people of color, were paying taxes, they weren't speaking up at meetings and going to take part in the political process. And I, this is me, a child of the 60s, coming out of the civil rights movement and the Black Panthers. So I knew that the answer lied in the community. So I don't care what they say about the Black Panthers. We were taught strength and courage and that we could make a difference. Right. So I did that. And then from the adult group, the teenagers didn't have anything to do. So now we're into the drugs, the drug crisis, the crack and all this. So we started organizing activities for teenagers. And then the teenagers, uh, through them, we formed uh, the program called STAR, Serious Teens and Adults Acting Responsible. Okay. And so through STAR, there were 10 principles that we taught. So we there was a structure to the program where we taught principles. And then those teenagers became leaders that helped the younger children. And so we did after school programs. And so STAR was recognized by the international organization Save the Children. Wow. And so Save the Children uh, started funding our activities uh, back in the late 80s, now early 90s. And so I was given an opportunity to direct the program for the national level. And I was based at South Carolina State University. So wow. that's how I got to teaching at the university level. So from STAR, which still is active today. 
So I have young people who are alumni of the program who are now parents and grandparents. And so they're carrying the initiative on to, when I came to Columbia 20 years ago, I got involved with Circle, Southeast Rural Community Organization. And so that's where I live in the Southeast Columbia. So um, they were renovating a historic black home, the Harriet Barber House. Yes. And so they, you're familiar with that, good. Yes. So black history has always been a big part. Every year I would have to do something around black history. And so I've worked with them to help them renovate this historic home. And then we started doing the Strong Threads Festival. And so from there, I've worked with other organizations, um, the Anti-Caring Foundation. I've worked with Regina Skeeters and Blend Out Loud. And uh, Josie Brightstone and her socks, the sanctuary of care. Yes. So the whole thing is about community empowerment. That you have to have, and that's my philosophy around strong threads. And I go back to uh, Dr. King's uh, speech from the Birmingham Birmingham jail. Yes. where he said that uh, we're all connected and uh, mutual understanding. I don't have the quote in front of me, but you probably remember it. Yes. Yeah, we're all connected uh, in the cloth of mutuality. Yes. And so I believe that. Well, here it is. Okay. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in the single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I love it. I live that. That's my that's my motto. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from. Uh, I've interacted with people of all different race, ethnicity, uh, gender, identification, uh, age groups. We're all the same. Yes. When I went from teaching first grade one year to high school English the next year, everybody said, how did you do that? How could you go from first grade? Because they were all children. They're all children. They're all children. And then when I went to teach at the college, they're children too. And if you approach them from care. If, they, if you show respect, and care you have them no matter who they are black white asian native american we're all the same because we're people we're human and so my effort even as a working teacher was to reach out into the community no matter where i taught school i had to be doing something in the community to bring them into the school because to help people understand, communities make strong schools. Wow, wow, wow. Thank you so much. If we have listeners, educators, and spouses, or children of educators, or just general public, stakeholders in the general public, community activists, people that have been bitten by the bug and want to make a difference in their communities, people who are in communities where schools aren't necessarily um, satisfying them. 
how can they contact you? Um, what's your contact information? How can they get more information on being a part of maybe um, serious teens and adults acting responsibly or, or any of these different initiatives that you have, the Strong Threads Festival? And what, what would you say is your the best way for them to get in contact with you? Okay, well, I hope you're able to print some of this here, but they can go to my website, strongthreadsinc.org. Okay. That's strongthreadsinc.org. Okay. Or starnetwork.org, and that's star, S-T-A-A-R, okay. network.org. Okay. Or teacherhood.net. And teacherhood, that's the one where we're focusing on mental health, teacherhood.net. Okay. Or my email address, my name, Veronica Promise, at Gmail. That's probably the easiest one to remember. If you just email me, Veronica Promise at gmail.com. All right. And All right. I will definitely respond. Um, right now, we're looking, I'm working with a group of people who are working to have a conference for teachers, for mental health and of teachers. And, um, probably late March. Okay. So there'll be more information coming about that. Awesome. And Hugh, we hopefully we can include you in that effort. I would love to be a part of that. I would love to share, you know, tell my story and maybe I could encourage somebody through the challenges that I have had to overcome as well. Um, right. um, you've heard it from Miss Veronica Primus. I'm going to repeat those bits of information so that you can reach out to her strongthreadsinc.org that's one website again that is strongthreads t-h-r-e-a-d-s inc.org there's starnetwork.org star is spelled s-t-a-a-r network.org there's teacherhood.net and simple way Miss is Veronica Primus, V E R O N I C A P R I M U S at gmail.com. Yeah, um, I encourage you reach out to this um, young lady in the spirit. She's passionate, she's committed to what she does, and you've heard it tonight. You've heard it in this broadcast the challenges that teachers are facing, the challenges that schools are facing. And ultimately, if the teachers are facing these challenges, students, are, uh, as a result, are facing these challenges as well. But if we start at the top, we start those frontline workers we call teachers, classroom teachers, giving them the help and support that they need to, to deal with all the political mumbo jumbo that's going around around, around this country, um, I think we will be a benefit to our school systems and our educational systems. Something that Ms. Veronica said throughout, communities make the difference in the schools that are in those communities. Going into those schools, partnering with those schools, uh, holding those school leaders accountable to what they promise, going to school board meetings, speaking, running for school board, um, you know, uh, just having a voice there, um, you know, challenging, there, there's a loud but small minority of people that are trying to sway this entire nation in a certain direction. But, but we can all work together. Like the quote she lifted, 
where Martin Luther King said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. We all need each other to survive. We're going to kill each other if we don't work together. In these last few minutes before we close today, Miss Miss Primus, if you had two minutes to share something inspirational or motivational or just encouraging to a teacher who is at their wits end and they're in the throes of a mental breakdown, what would you say to them in closing? Education is worth it. Teaching is worth it. You do make a difference. Believe just your presence speaks volume to children. You never know who you might impact. I'm constantly surprised and amazed at what my former students come back and tell me. And I've had that over and over again, teaching in so many different places. They'll say, do you remember you said this and you said that? It's never about the academics. It's about how I made them feel. And that's how I remember my teachers, how they made me feel. So please know, if you're in this profession, you had to go through a lot. That's something that's parents to understand. You don't walk off the street and teach. You go through the college. You go through testing. You go through a bunch of stuff uh, before you can walk in that classroom. Don't let it be for nothing. But take care of yourself first. Do the work on yourself. Be clear about your values. And please, Teach the children. Don't leave them. I believe the children are the future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Hugh J. Herman. We had a special guest today, Miss Veronica Primus, talking about mental health and educators. And she just left us with some really inspiring words and some encouragement. I pray that if you listen to this live, you were inspired. You will reach out to her at strongthreads.com strongthreadsinc.org at starnetwork.org star is spelled s-d-a-a-r network.org at teacherhood.net or simply at veronica primus v-e-r-o-n-i-c-a p-r-i-m-u-s at gmail.com again thank you for joining us for bridging the gap here on never had a so good gospel network and Never Had So Good Sports Network, we thank you for joining us. Thank you for being a part of this discussion. I hope that I encourage you to be a bridge builder and not a wall builder. Have a great day. God bless. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Gap with Pastor Hugh J. Harmon, featured here weekly on Never Had It So Good Sports Network, a Columbia-based show with global impact. Thank you again for listening to us, to Bridging the Gap with yours truly, Pastor Hugh J. Harmon. We are a Columbia-based show, but we believe we have a global impact. Thank you, Bridge Builders. We look forward to seeing you next week.